Hello beautiful and welcome to Pure Happy Healthy. This is a podcast all about mindfulness in different fields that are dear to my heart. Join me for Mindful Me sessions, Mindful Model, Mindful Mensch and Mindful Master and dive in to beautiful conversations. Hi and welcome to another special Christmas episode. I do know that Christmas is literally over, but I still have my tree here at home and it still feels a little bit like Christmas. And for the ones of you who maybe didn't have such a nice Christmas this year, because obviously the situation is a bit different than usual for most of you, I guess, um, I want to keep up an uplifting episode for the upcoming weeks so you can keep up your Christmas vibes and maybe stay a little bit in this cozy, warm, homey vibe of yeah, just feeling safe and feeling good. Um, so today I'm speaking with Madeleine McGillivray. She is a fellow model and but really found her niche there. She is known or wants to be seen and known as a model activist who really um, puts her full energy into making the scene a better one and really taking good care of the planet and all about the environment and sustainability. She also studies environmental science and is very focused on the problem of microplastic and this is a topic where we will speak a bit more about in this episode and also about trash in general, the issue that we're currently facing in the world with COVID and producing more takeaway stuff and more plastic and using more resources and how uh, our earth is really struggling with that. So I would say that generally the focus of our interview is really on how we can make the model industry a bit better in terms of sustainability, but also how we can take just simple steps in order to move to a more plastic-free, but also more sustainable world and environment. We are also speaking about intuition and how she follows her intuition, what problems can maybe come up when you really follow your inner voice and also about the ethics, the own ethics and modeling and so much more. So I wish you so much fun listening to this podcast episode. I hope you're all healthy and had some great Christmas days, no matter how you spend them. And yeah, just enjoy. Hi and welcome, first of all. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, um, you are six hours apart from me in the time zone, so it's morning for you now. So I would love to know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? That's a great question. Well, um, I have to say I woke up about an hour and a half ago, um, which is like 7.45-ish. I currently have not transitioned off of my tea yet. So I've only had tea. It's black tea with a little bit of nut milk. Um, and I will probably after this eat um, either coconut yogurt with granola and berries or oatmeal or maybe some nuts and dates. This is kind of, that's kind of my breakfast situation. Wow. It's Interesting. I would say probably 90% of all my guests have the oats and the um, plant milk or plant yogurt breakfast with uh, fruits and seeds and so on. Um, is that what you have every day or is it something special? No, it's, it's not what I have every day. I tend to eat it more in the warmer months. And, um, you know, I think it's so popular and good because it's it just so there's something about it that's so fulfilling and I actually made my own um like jam raspberry jam um or it was more like a compote so I like do a glop of that and I found this amazing coconut yogurt that doesn't have any extra sugar and it tastes amazing and it comes in a glass thing and it's kind of like an indulgence so um that is really delicious and you know another thing I've been doing in the mornings is sometimes I'm not super hungry um and but I still want to eat And I like look at a banana and I'm like, would I want to eat a banana with peanut butter? No, that's too thick. And so, <laughs> and so I um, take an apple and I slice it and I kind of boil it for a couple minutes with cloves and cinnamon. 
and it's like it's an ayurvedic thing and you just kind of pop the like slices of apple in your mouth and it's just the perfect uh little morning thing especially in cold weather so that too wow that sounds delicious i should make a cook show with all my guests i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's so easy too mm. yeah, yeah. I A savory German girl. I love bread for breakfast, uh, but maybe that would be something warming for the evening or such. Um, it sounds like you're um, a very intuitive person, as I can tell from your food choices. Is that a right guess from my end? Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, I try to feel through life in every regard. Um, you know, It obviously must take an intuitive person to say that because no one has really just started talking to me and being like, oh, I think you're an intuitive person. Um, and I think it's something that oftentimes I feel somewhat isolated in, depending on the circles that I'm in. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think I've always um, had a, an added quality of of just uh, empathy, like knowing if someone else is uncomfortable that I don't know that I'm looking at being like, they're uncomfortable or the opposite. So yeah, definitely. Mm. So what makes you feel uncomfortable about it when you trust your intuition? In which situation does that come up for you or why? It's a really good question. Um, I think that a lot of A lot of uh, difficulty and sort of growth for me, especially this year, has happened uh, when I am weighing out my intuition as it pertains to empathy um, when I'm making boundaries with people. And I think that making boundaries is something that uh, is... I'm seeing a lot of like on social media, which I think is really interesting. This dialogue that has sort of bloomed, at least in the information that I, you know, curate for myself on social media. But um, yeah, I think a shortish answer to that would be knowing that I'm going to make someone else uncomfortable doing what makes me feel the most good and comfortable. And that's really something that goes against my entire upbringing and um, I'm not even talking about like extreme things here. I'm really just talking about being really anti-confrontational. Um, but it's a muscle and I'm, I'm actually growing it. And so once you actually do something that is maybe low stakes, um, I'll speak for myself and, you know, it, it feels like dipping a toe in the water. So, you know, I, I think that for me, what makes me uncomfortable in terms of my intuition is, you know, making boundaries um, as subtle as they might be, as low stakes as they might be. And, but, you know, in addition to that, it is a muscle that grows. And so I'm learning through that. Hmm. Oh, so interesting that you connect that with boundaries. And um, I was already saying it in the introduction, you're also modeling. Um, so how is that for you? I feel, at least I feel that um, being quite old for a model, that it's really necessary to have your boundaries and modeling other ways. Um, it's really easy to get lost in that industry and really of people taking advantage of you. So how was that for you, modeling and, and, and boundaries? How did you see it for yourself? Yeah, I think that's a really excellent question because um, I, it's a conversation among models that's just, you know, one of the most common conversations that almost just doesn't ever happen on purpose. It just happens because it's such an important conversation. Um, and I think it carries on to all professional realms too, because I, although I, I think I can successfully say I'm a model. <laughs> I never quite, uh, like, um, it was something that I always, well, not always, but when I was in college, I was kind of thinking like, gosh, if there was a way that I could connect my other passions with the fashion industry, that would be really cool. But it wasn't something that I actively pursued. And I think that I've managed to really stay on kind of the periphery of the industry. And when I, what I mean by that is that I have not experienced a lot of the very, um, you know, 
unacceptable and traumatic things that most, uh, if not all of my friends who are models have experienced. I've experienced being uncomfortable, um, but, you know, and, and it's all relative, so I'm not trying to minimize my own experience, but I'm, I'm sort of prefacing by saying that I haven't really had to make strong boundaries in the fashion industry, and I think it's because I haven't really been in the fashion industry. I've, you know, I started out kind of working in New York just with, um, by word of mouth, with friends, brands, and photographers that respected me and knew me, and I think that that is a huge testament to where the industry is going. The fact that I can just sort of step on and know that I'm so privileged in that experience that I've had. Um, and, and just, but also I haven't experienced a larger, you know, extent of, of the, the larger industry. So, um, so there's, there's good and bad with that. But I think in terms of boundaries, professionally, in all realms, I think it's crucial to um, to know what what your extent is, and I think that to actually get to your question, um, I I uh, am like many people, kind of in different little, you know, uh, it's the gig economy, right? Like we're we're doing different things, and so my expertise, my my foundation comes with environmental activism, specifically microplastics research. Um, so my degree, which we can talk about later, if you know, whatever, uh, is in environmental science. I'm currently getting my master's in sustainability management, both at Columbia. And so I, um, you know, entered into fashion, quote unquote, thinking like, how can I create a platform or how can I talk about environmental issues or climate crisis? And then there's other aspects of my, my personality that are creative um, and, and other things. So when you're like that, boundaries are just crucial, like absolutely vital or else you just burn out. So I think that in this day and age, you just got to know when to put your computer down and, and stop typing or, you know, have, have, you know, create those things. And I think in COVID, especially, obviously, we're all the work-life balance is, is um, melding for a lot of people uh, who are privileged enough not to have to risk their lives and continue their essential work. And so um, that is, it's basically time management and really connecting with yourself and feeling in your body. I feel like when I feel um, certain sensations in my body, like like my shoulder, particularly my right shoulder gets like a sharp pain when I know that I'm kind of out of touch or if there's something that is in my in my emotional realm that I'm not intellectually or cognitively connecting with. So my body being like, you have to sort this out now. So there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. You just said so many things. I don't even know where I want to start. So sorry. <laughs> in the morning, I'm very talkative. So I apologize. Well, chose the perfect spot to do the podcast interview, I would say. <laughs> Good match. <laughs> so you, first of all, it's so interesting that you said you feel it literally in your body when something is off. And I think that really shows that you have a really high intuition because it's really also all connected. And I just a few days ago, I had a podcast interview with um, 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 a holistic healer and she can see from where we have pain, how it's connected to what happens in our mindset. And um, she was also talking about shoulder um, and all that. Um, so you can dive into that episode more if you're interested as a listener and finding out about it. And yeah. it's, but I think a lot of people have lost touch to that. And therefore, I love when people actually recognize that you have a pain and it's not just coming from somewhere and it's not just popping a pain reliever and then you're fine, but actually looking where is this coming from and what is this pain wanting to tell me about the situation and how can I actually learn from this and change my behavior or change something in the outside. So I love that you said that. And going back to the boundaries where we were starting, um, I find it so interesting that you come from a background of environmental science and you're really into the microplastic. And as for me, I often get requests from big brands 
that are really not true to what I want to um, stand for or what I want to support in my life with my background of being very mindful and aware of things. Um, so is that also something that crosses your path as a model that you really each job have to decide? Is that something that I can actually um, live with doing or is this according to my values? Such a good question. Thank you so much for asking because it's spot on, right? Like you really, I think, got to um, one of my life's <laughs> and many people's moral, you know, um, questions. And I think that there, on the one hand, you can say that in order to um, change an industry, you have to kind of infiltrate. In order to um, make a difference, you have to understand experientially what the system is like holistically. Um, so for people like you or um, models who are much more steeped in the industry than myself, I would say that you can become a person who, um, you know, using the word activist in sort of a, a casual radical sense like you could just be on set and just be like ask some non-annoying or annoying question of whoever is in charge of producing like why did we get the plastic bottles oh well it just comes with the uh you know the venue oh but why the look can we talk to the you know and obviously most people don't have the enough power in that situation to speak up at all um so however you can that's fine but on the other hand it is such a crucial moral question and i think that, that like part of me is just like well the universe really does not want me to um you know represent products and things like on a larger scale because the amount of castings and the amount of conversations i've had with um agencies where i'm like okay please represent me as like an environmentalist. Like I want to be Madeline who works with sustainable brands or I want to be Madeline who is like, oh, a brand reaches out to you and it's like, oh, we're doing this campaign for activism and, or we're going to talk about the oceans or what. Okay, Madeline's your girl if you want that kind of look, right? And the amount of people who have just been like, mm, we really just want to represent you. I mean, non, they wouldn't tell me, they don't, you know, but reading between the lines, we're going to, or sometimes it's explicit actually. Um, but it's like, mm, we're not that kind of agency or, oh, but really what they're saying is we want you to be a moldable kind of person who isn't, you know, doesn't have their own sort of uh, platform already. And I think that that is changing a lot because the conversations I'm having now are so much different, honestly. Um, and I'm not even talking about like my, my time in fashion only started after I graduated undergrad. So it's been like three years maximum. Um, so it's already changing. So I think that combating that moral question is a really big deal. Do I want to be literally selling products to people when I talk about reducing your waste or reducing your consumerism? Okay, I need to put food on the table and pay rent in order to talk about reducing your consumerism. So it's this cycle. Um, and there, there's a larger, uh, there's a larger question here, I think, which is like, um, these sort of conflicting, uh, you know, ideologies, um, that really speaks to just like the experience of humans, uh, on earth in 2020. And I think we all have things that we, um, maybe feel guilty about or things that tug at us that we're thinking about in the back of our minds. We're not exactly sure how to get to the core. And I think it really just, it takes like time and these little tiny baby like changes. Um, also you can do it radically and all at once, but I think that it speaks to really this, these questions that we're all facing. So yeah, really good question. Mm. Yeah, I love the example that you were just telling about just asking why do we need plastic bottles on set? 
So this is such a good example on how we can bring awareness into the everyday life and into the everyday production. Um, and I mean, for some people that might be a little bit annoying because it is an uncomfortable question because you're making someone, in this case, the, the producer of the whole thing, responsible for not thinking about it. But it's so necessary because often these people don't even think about it. They just take the easiest version out. They just take the fastest and easiest way. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of big companies and that's how, how even private people work. Like, why should I separate trash? It's so much faster and easier to just throw it all in once. But then it is all about these simple steps and it is about everyone participating in the simple things in order to create that change. And maybe if you get that uncomfortable question, you will remember the next time um, when you book the, the set and then maybe do something different. So it's so good to speak up about these things. But I imagine, like, I mean, in, as a model, as I know it, you're the lowest part of the wheel. So people, you're not really, you are important on set, of course, but people don't see you as an important part, unfortunately, sometimes. So what do people say to you when you speak up about these issues or can you tell any situation where this, you said something? Yeah, totally. I think that what's interesting is the majority of the times that I have, and knowing that I'm the lowest rung on the ladder, so to speak, but I still just say something. And a side note, there is kind of an art to saying something uncomfortable. Like I've noticed this in bars before COVID, obviously I have stories of um, you know, talking to bartenders about my straw and just the things that people that go through people's minds um, reveal a lot. And I've learned kind of how to be approachable and to say something uncomfortable that isn't perceived as like annoying and cliche and uncomfortable, but it takes practice um, and really getting on other people's level. Um, but I would say when I say something on set, majority of the time the person is like I know it makes me feel you know it's so unnecessary like I know I don't know how to I don't I didn't know how to like not how to avoid the problem so they know too most of the time um and that's really interesting because well they have more of a voice than you do so you can kind of and a couple times I've been on um shoots where they everybody brings their own uh you know jar and um, I mean, it's happened really just probably twice, but it makes you feel so good. And I think that these little changes, because you might be listening being like, okay, well, you know, we really just need this huge systemic change. And I think that I'm, I'm a person who has seen um, big change and small change. And I can just tell you that it is all, it all matters. And um it really does all matter because these conversations just need to happen. And it's these conversations happening, like while you're just waiting for the person to steam a garment or whatever that really change other people's mindset. So um, I think, you know, and I've come to set just not saying anything, but just bring my own container and people already just say it. And they're like, oh, I love your jar. And I'm like, it's just a jar. You know, you can get one too. It's very like costs 50 cents. And um so yeah, it's actions as well, just going by uh, example. Mm. I don't know if it's the same thing in New York or in the United States in general, but ever since um, COVID, um, we've had much, much more takeaway because at this current moment, we are in the second lockdown. So everything is closed, just takeaway is allowed. And it's horrendous how much trash you see on the street. And it almost makes me want to cry when I see all these trash cans that are filling over and the plastic is everywhere on the streets. And my every area where I live is actually not usually quite clean and people take care, but the, the amount of trash that is produced because of all this takeaway is just not being able to handle anymore from all the um, workers who put it away. So, and that is so crazy to me. And I feel like this should be such an alarming sign for everyone to 
approach the change and maybe if it is coming with your own plate to the takeaway i mean where do you want to go to eat it you're going to go home anyways take your own box reuse the, the things that you're using and it's such a big problem that um needs to be um in the focus again and really needs to change um and The other thing I was thinking about, there is a Hawaiian saying, and I forgot, unfortunately, the name of it because it's a really long, old Hawaiian um, name. But it's basically about um, that the easiest thing is not always the best. And the small things that you do, they make the life and they make the difference. And I think that hits it on point. And it's, it's about... Maybe when you're going out and going on, on a walk and you see all this plastic everywhere, just having the courage to maybe for half an hour, just collect the trash and put it somewhere um, or just taking the time to separate your trash and all these simple things. And then when other people see you, they can, they see it and they're like, oh yeah, this is a problem. So basically like you just said, so I will check it out, the, the sentence and put it in the show notes of the Hawaiian thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that really hits it on point. Um, did you want to say something about this? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that um, it, the, the idea of trash increasing with COVID around the world is this global issue. It is obviously connected directly to the need for more takeout. I think that that's the big driver and masks and, you know, disposable medical masks and all that stuff. Um, but I also think like people's kind of mindset even shifted where priorities, right? Like we're just trying to survive at this point. Um, and when you're just trying to survive, uh, trash is just you can't even think about it because, you know, you're just trying to live. And I think that that um, has brought a lot of people closer to the daily struggles of individuals who are just trying to survive every day and have been for years and years and years. And how this conversation around sustainability and bringing your own reusables and stuff is so steeped in privilege, at least in, you know, in the global conversation and the conversations I've had. And, you know, the, the events I've been to and the panels I've seen and yeah, it's like, it, unfortunately, it's not accessible for everybody to be um, even cognizant of their uh, footprint because it's not their fault. That's the thing. It's like, it's corporations and oil, fossil fuel corporations and large brands basically that are driving us to to think that we you know have a disposable lifestyle so you know clearly i could just like talk about that but i think that your point with trash is so important and the conversation around privilege and trash is really important too um and i mean even myself like when covid first happened i remember walking down the street in search of like isopropyl alcohol because it was when everyone wanted to like make their own <laughs> hand sanitizer and I was like okay I don't want to hoard it so I bought one container um and I I just remember having this attitude of like Ugh, it's kind of like we don't know what's happening so it's kind of survival mode so I'm just gonna like get a bar and eat it and throw it away and blah, like the throw away it just became way 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 less like lower of a priority um And so it, it's life, but it, hopefully that has brought a lot of people, obviously it's a, that's a sad and a bad thing, but if we're going to look at any positive, it has brought people closer to the, the empathy surrounding why other people, um, you know, don't have the privilege to think about their, their own waste. Mm, that is such an interesting point. I, I never connected the COVID survival mechanism with actually what's happening um, around the world in less developed countries where there is this big trash problem. So basically trash is a um, like a luxury problem, <laughs> like yeah. a problem. Um, yeah, I never, thank you for sharing this. And um, that makes me want to ask more about um, your focus on micro microplastics. So could you tell a little bit what um, this is all about and how you take activism there? Absolutely. Um, and stop me, please, when I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a microplastic 
just to define what that is, um, I'm sure a lot of us have heard of microplastics before. Obviously, I think it's becoming a little bit more mainstream, but uh, microplastics, technically speaking, are pieces of plastic uh, five millimeters in diameter or under. So the biggest can be five millimeters in diameter. Um, and you know, basically there's two kinds of microplastics. There's primary and secondary. Um, so basically microplastics are manufactured as microplastics. So some um, companies manufacture microplastics to um, scrub ships um, to be like industrial sort of exfoliants, so to speak. And then there's the microbeads, which are manufactured as cosmetic exfoliants, which luckily are being banned in most countries at this point. Um, and then there's uh, what we call pre-production pellets, which are manufactured. Uh, they're refined from oil. All plastic is a petroleum product. It all comes from oil. Um, and they're refined from oil and they're sort of broken down and, and, and spit out as these little pellets that then get melted into whatever plastic product, like your laundry detergent bottle, your, you know, coffee cup, whatever. Um, so those are, their, those are the pre-production sort of the manufactured microplastics and then the microplastics that we often see uh, in the media and that we know as an issue are um, the other category, which is basically microplastics that come from larger, we call them macroplastics. Um, it's like your single-use disposable, whatever, plastic bottle that get broken down over the course of several months um, and are in the environment. They're in the waterways, they're in the rivers, the lakes, and the ocean, and the soil, and the atmosphere, and on, you know, residue on tree leaves and all like they're just everywhere um and both types are they're both microplastics and they're both equally as bad actually um but the microplastics that are post-production are a result of the extremely broken system of recycling and waste uh globally many countries have different ways of dealing with waste uh, the United States is one of the ones that is horrible at dealing with recycling. We really only recycle about 10 to 15 percent of what we produce. And also that's not, yeah, recycling is just such a, it's just not, it's kind of a myth because it, um, we only really pass the melted plastic through like another round which is recycling in its sense should be like forever and ever. Like I remember actually being in Berlin <laughs> and buying a bottle of like seltzer or something and it was like a glass bottle that was so scratched up because it just actually gets recycled <laughs> and in the united states that's not not a thing so yeah so that's so that's like the microplastics technical kind of intro and then my um background briefly is just that i went on this extremely um uh I would say intellectually and emotionally enriching five day like expedition where I collected microplastics. And I kind of just found myself on this boat with all these amazing people. It was um, an expedition that the organization Five Gyres Institute uh, does every year. And I just signed up kind of randomly and I found myself on this boat with like researchers and, and sustainable brand, you know, executives and scientists. And I just was like, what am I doing here? And it really just sparked my curiosity. So we sailed from Bahamas to Bermuda and collected a bunch of plastic and wrote a paper on it. And I then went on to to write my thesis on microplastics in undergrad. Um, and I've gone on with Five Gyres, I'm an ambassador, to the Arctic um, and to Bali and to the Galapagos, just literally researching and collecting microplastics and talking about it. Um, so it's something that I think is a really big issue because it connects a lot of areas of life. I think when we hear microplastics, we're like, okay, this is not a priority. This is like world hunger first. Okay. Like, you know, microplastics, whatever, save the turtles. Okay. But what about me? Right. Getting back to like the privilege and, and like priorities and survival. 
But the reason why I think microplastics is uh, a really important issue is because it's at the intersection of so much. Plastic comes from oil. Okay, it's a fossil fuel problem, which is like a climate crisis issue because if we weren't producing, I mean, the oil executives know that we're kind of declining on oil. Like, and they're really, they're ramping up plastic production. It's expected to increase by like, 8% or something in the next 30 years, which is actually a huge amount. I mean, they're putting billions and billions of dollars into plastic as we move away from fossil fuels for energy. Um, so it's a huge issue. It's also a human health issue because microplastics are in our bodies now. And we know that, but why is that bad, right? Like, okay, whatever, plastic... But the issue is that plastic attracts toxins. So t plastic isn't just pieces of plastic. It's attracted all the toxins along its journey, which there are many, many in the environment. They're called persistent organic pollutants. Um, and they were literally manufactured in like the 60s to persist in the environment. So they're endocrine disruptors. So PCBs, DDT, like they, they harm organ function. They harm fe fetal development. So it's, it's a human health issue. And there was a paper published last year that proved that nanoplastics, which is when they get really small, actually enter into our cells and can denature our blood plasma. So this is like a huge public health problem that is not currently sufficiently researched, but hopefully, and you know, it surely it will be, and it is currently right now. So, and the, the last reason I think is that you know, it, it is an easy kind of vote with your dollar issue. Like when you're talking about how to make a change, I think so much of the conversation is with individual um, waste choices because it actually does make a difference. Like you really can in reducing your waste and reducing your consumption of single-use disposables, um, take money out of the pockets of these big corporations. So it's a, a, cho a change that you can make um, immediately. You don't have to run for office and then vote a bill into existence. You know, it's not this like long thing. Um, you can hold corporations accountable. So I'll stop there. <laughs> that's, that's my, yeah. That's like me when I speak about coffee. <laughs> <laughs> me, please. <laughs> no, I, I wish we could speak more about this. This is, I feel like we should record another episode about this because it's such an important and urgent topic as we see that it already affects every part of our life and our health and it's inside of us and I got it dived into that topic as well lately even more than before um, because I used to buy plastic bottles where I drank my water but over the time I realized like oh actually maybe I shouldn't do that because in the water there will be the plastic microplastics and then also I buy organic fruit and vegetable but from the bigger shops and it's all wrapped in plastic. And I mean, of course, there will be some microplastics on the fruit and veggies as well if they're transported with that and, and completely in touch all the time. So it's so controversial that you want to do good. You know, you're not drinking the sink water, which is completely filled up with chlorine and all the hormones and stuff like this. And you buy your water, but then it's filled in plastic. And then you buy organic because you think you want to do a good choice, but then it's all wrapped in plastic. So it's so hard sometimes to actually make the good choices. But I also see some really nice positive news about this. I um, just recently, I see it more and more that they now brand the fruit and veggies with a laser cutter and they write in bio, at least it means organic in German. Um, so there's no need for plastic anymore to be branded as organic. So you, you know what it is. Um, and yeah, I, there's delivery services which bring um, glass bottles up until your doorstep. So I'm doing that now. So there are better choices now to make, but I see this is in the baby steps. And I think there's so much more work to be done in order to really create that big change do you have any other small um, things that you can see where we're going actually in a good direction in terms of change? Yeah, totally. I think everything you're saying about branding veggies, which I have not seen in the United States yet. So given how far behind Europe the U.S. is, it'll probably be like 20 years until that happens. Uh, Let's send this podcast to your politicians over there. <laughs> yeah, please. Let's, yeah, I mean, the, the whole food packaging thing is crazy. But um, 
you know, and, and deliver delivery food services are, are kind of popping up. There's one in New York city called deliver zero. I actually interviewed them on a different podcast. So they're great. Uh, and I think before I, before I get into another um, kind of exciting, promising thing, I want to say that this system, what has been completely designed for the consumer to have absolute like zero power in this, like the fact that we are trying as hard as we can to reduce our waste. I mean, we're like climbing up this massive hill. It's so hard. Everything around us is just thrown at us, designed for convenience, convenience. And it is so anti just the philosophy of everything. That I mean, also it's kind of new, like, you know, the first to-go coffee cup was like in, I think like the forties or the twenties, maybe like basically not even a hundred years ago. And here we have this whole issue. So I'll say that um, it is fantastic that the consumer is taking it into their own hands, but um, don't let brands make you think that you're the problem or that you can solve it. You need to demand of brands that they change it. So that gets me into the other thing, which is in terms of brands, um, I think that something that is starting to be implemented at a larger scale is like um, return deposit schemes, like kind of what you're talking about with plastic or with glass bottles. This concept that um, you can get something mailed or sent to, or you can pick it up and then use it and then send the container back. There's a program called Loop, uh, which I don't know if it's a global thing yet. It's definitely in the U.S. Um, it will be global, I'm sure. And it's basically a, a stainless steel container uh, that you're like brands partner with this this company. So like you can literally get Haagen-Dazs ice cream in a stainless steel container because Haagen-Dazs partnered with Loop or you can get shampoo in a Loop bottle because I don't know what other like large shampoo company. So return deposit schemes, obviously there's questions around transportation energy, but I think that in, in terms of if we do um, if we do a cost benefit and really see uh, uh, the difference, I think the footprint falls way more heavily on the packaging production. Um, of course, it depends, obviously, and it depends on what's inside it, right? Maybe your ingredients came from halfway around the world, and that actually is the problem. So, uh, return deposit schemes, and that is the same with clothes. I'm sure it's happening in Berlin and all around Europe. Um, there's like rental apps that you can just rent something for four days and return it. Again, you have to dry clean it every single time. So what's that footprint? But um, <laughs> but certainly better than creating a new garment. Um, so I'm, I'm really hopeful of, of those kind of changes. Mm. I think Berlin is really, especially about fashion, very forward in terms of thrift shopping and reusing things and There's um, clothing swap parties where just everyone comes and you just meet with your friends or friends of friends and whoever. Um, so that has been like this for a very long time also because um, people in Berlin or Berlin is known to be not <laughs> the most rich place. So people will find solution on how to reuse things. And that's really an advantage in, in this situation. So, um, yeah, I think in this term, Berlin can be really, and uh, yeah, very good, go ahead as a very good example. And also I think Berlin fashion therefore is really special. It, I have not seen any place on earth and I've traveled a lot where the fashion is so, let's say creative and wild like Berlin. And yeah, I find that very beautiful. And there is really no limits on how people dress and how people express themselves with fashion. What makes me want to go back a little bit to the topic of modeling for you, to you. Um, so you said you somehow found your niche a little bit apart from the, the really fast forward fashion. And I'm sure we're on the same page there because for me, it was more that I was too old when I started modeling. I was mid-20 or beginning mid-20. And that's when most of the models already stop <laughs> again. Um, right, yeah. So I find my niche a little bit there more towards the... Yeah, adult fashion. Let's say, let's say, I'm not in a nasty and sexy way, but <laughs> in a in a more conservative way, even maybe, or 
ecologically friendly. So what would you say is your niche that you found in modeling? Mm, good question. Yeah, I think uh, I was, I shared the worry that you did because I got into it at 22. Ooh, whoa, so old. And I remember talking to an agency, a huge agency and being like, um, I know, I know I'm kind of late to the game. And she actually said, you know, you, you're fine. Like right now the industry is changing so much, like age is no longer a thing, which is crazy. because I came into that with all these, you know, preconceptions that I was like an old lady at the, at the age of 22. Like, not that I feel old, but that they would perceive me as like, Oh, we could have used you for the last eight years and you know, whatever. But, um, so this is a huge, uh, like kind of moral and internal conversation that I have with myself and that I've been having with others. And that is the concept of in today's day and age, where we're all about growth, 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 and exponential growth and capitalist exponential growth. Like we have to ask ourselves as individuals um, and ourselves as like owners of brands, of companies, fashion brands, agencies, everything. Like how big are you trying to go? Because if your ultimate goal is to grow exponentially and to become a global dominating company or person or whatever, that is inherently unsustainable, obvious. It seems obvious, but you know, and I, I also do like fashion consulting work. I speak with brands about how they can be more sustainable. And this is like a question that you have to ask people and it can be really uncomfortable because they can take it personally. Um, but you really have to have that conversation. Like how big do you want to go? Because, um, you know, if you're trying to go as big as possible, that is inherently unsustainable. So I think for me, I carry this pride which you clearly do as well in knowing that like I'm not trying to take over the industry and dominate and get all these jobs because the sometimes and and actually oftentimes more it's much more effective to um to operate from kind of a grassroots perspective um you know, you're not tied down by all these kind of obligations um, in terms of agreements and, and associations and like time frame. You, you kind of, um, I don't know, I think I, I, I hope I'm not using terms that are like <clears throat> too broad, <laughs> excuse me, but uh, I think that I'm sort of getting at this philosophy that we all have to ask ourselves, which is like, how big are we trying to go? Because I think that in American <clears throat> culture, excuse me, we have this conception that um, that it's like go huge and everyone needs to just amass all the funds and the whatever as possible. Obviously, that is a very anti-common, commons, like anti-community attitude because then there's not enough for everybody. Um, so I'm operating from that perspective, which is the niche that is like, um, it's actually cooler to maybe not be um, trying to, to, to have the biggest gig ever or something like that. Maybe that's cool too. And like, if you get offered that gig, like, and if I got offered that gig, I would take it because I need to pay rent. <laughs> like, okay. So I'm actually really not bashing that at all. Um, but I'm sort of offering a, an, a look, offering like a perspective into what if we, what if we look at people who choose to remain on a sustainable, lower kind of grassroots level as people who are doing that with intention and doing it in an effective way and knowing that sometimes you can get a lot farther through that route. So I guess the way that I have kind of carved it out is that I'm with an amazing agency called Role Models. They are an agency that represents activists, basically. Um, and I met Anne Therese, who's the co-founder with Val. Um, uh, I was actually interviewing her on a podcast and she offered to, to me a contract afterwards, which is wonderful. 
And uh, yeah, it's kind of the same as like a model who chooses not to be um, like with an agency or a big agency. Like nowadays you can totally get work and totally like you don't need an agency anymore. Whereas before that was the only social dialogue like only thing everyone ever knew was like you're with an agency and you can't do anything outside of that but i think things are just changing now so it's the same kind of philosophy hmm. our time is running out unfortunately I'm sorry i'm really giving you these long-winded answers now i just want to ask you a few very quick questions toward the end where you can just give me a fast answer um right. what's the in which direction is the fashion industry going what's the future of fashion I think the future of fashion is um, that garments are not made new anymore. Hopefully we're moving towards um, the only sustainable thing, the only sustainable garment really is one that already exists or is fully biodegradable. So made out of materials that already exist um, or can be returned to the earth or upcycled successfully. So I really hope that that is where fashion um, like garment wise is going i also believe that it's much more ethical future because there is absolutely no sustainability and ethics environmental justice it's all connected so we really need transparency in factories um, and workers getting paid better by corporations a lot of these companies have really not paid their workers throughout the pandemic and it's not okay so if you're interested in that there's a company called remake it's an organization um, remake our world i'm lucky to be an ambassador and they deal with uh, transparency and demanding that brands pay up. Cool, I will link that to the show notes. Uh, also a short question, um, what is the future of beauty? Good question. Um, the future of beauty, uh, do you mean like cosmetics industry or like how we perceive beauty? What's, what's the ideal, the beauty ideal uh, going to? Well, hopefully like empathy. I feel like we have this, in America, this very incorrect um, preconception that, that empathy equals fragility. And I think that is so weird because like to be empathic is actually like the strongest thing to do. Mm. Oh, I love this answer. Madeleine, it was such an honor to speak with you and I could keep on doing this the whole evening but and your whole day. But uh, yeah. I need to end this at one point, but thank you so much for being here and sharing all this very important information. Thank you so much for your work and everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking these amazing questions. It was a really lovely flow of the conversation. I'm really, um, really grateful for that. So thank you so much for giving me the ability to just, pew, just spew <laughs> and hopefully we'll, we'll stay in touch, maybe have another conversation. Certainly.